Today we start something new. It's a new season and we have a new subject to focus on. This fall, we're going to look at the power of beauty to change the world. In my family, our favorite time of the year is the fall. Sweater weather, apple picking, pumpkin, everything. We love it because it's the season when the world changes so dramatically and so beautifully. Now, in a time when people can't seem to agree about anything, there is one thing we're all certain about this fall. The world needs to change, dramatically, and we hope, beautifully. Whenever something changes for the better, there's always a reason, some kind of motivation behind the shift. Fear, disappointment, anger, these work to motivate people, but what we need now is different. We need something constructive to move us, something good to aspire to. Beauty is what we need. Now, we don't think of it often, but beauty is a tremendously powerful motivator. It moves people because deep down, there's a part of us that knows beauty is what we were made for. Real beauty not the way we dress ourselves up to look pretty on the outside, but the compelling power of something pure and good and true. Like when a person turns to the world which needs help to do what is right, not for herself, but because she knows this is how it should be. Or when someone gives himself to others out of love, when he sacrifices to change things for the better, no matter what it costs him, that's beautiful. And when we see something like that, real beauty, it's inspiring. And it shows us what to aspire to. And right now, we need to have something beautiful to aspire to. Because we all agree the world is growing uglier by the day. And it's time for a change. Listen to this passage from the prophet Isaiah. These are words which were offered in a time that was ugly. This is Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Peace, good news, salvation, and the reign of God. This is what we need. This is the beauty that will save us. This morning, I'm going to show you that Jesus is the beautiful messenger Isaiah promised, the one who announces peace, who brings salvation, who establishes the kingdom of God in a world that is ugly. And now he invites all who trust in him to live beautifully and in that way be the change that the world needs. Let's look together at Jesus' first recorded sermon in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, 
starting with verse 16. Let's listen together. When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Let's try to put ourselves in this story. We're in Jesus' hometown, in the synagogue that he attended as a child, in the gathering place where his family and his friends, his neighbors and his relatives all came each Sabbath to hear the scriptures read and then to listen to the rabbi's explanation. Jesus is back in his childhood village, but now he's not a kid anymore. He's been out in the world for a while on his own, teaching. He's been traveling all around Galilee, gathering his own students and taking turns in other synagogues, standing and reading and speaking about the word of God. But now he's in Nazareth. And all of us have heard about him, but none of us have heard him yet in person. And today, he's standing up front. The attendant has handed the scroll of Isaiah to him. And now he's about to choose which part to read. Watch what he does. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. One sentence, and he's got everyone's attention. Because he's picked a passage about good news in a time when everyone really needs good news. A passage that pointed to the coming of God's Messiah. In Hebrew, the word anointed is Messiah. God's special deliverer, the one everyone's been looking for all these years, the one whose beauty will overcome the ugliness that everyone agrees needs to change. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus reads, because God has anointed me. Is he saying that he's the one? God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. What does he mean, good news to the poor? We know that the poor are those whose hearts are far from God, so they suffer an inner impoverishment that only God can fix. This makes sense to us because pastors like me are quick to hear the spiritual side of promises like this. And there is truth in hearing like that, but not all the truth. At Nazareth, everyone hears something else first. Good news for the poor means relief from the constant pressure of not having enough to survive. It means food when you're hungry and clothing for dignity and protection. It means a warm place to sleep and ground to stand on that is level. It means equal footing. 
no longer disadvantaged because you live in a world that's tilted against you because of your family tree or the social strata you and your kind of people are stuck in. That's what we would have heard if we were in that synagogue, first of all. Let's pause here for a bit of history. For more than 300 years prior to this scene, the structures that held life together in the ancient world had been in constant flux. The old Greek ideal of the city, the polis, had failed to solve the world's promises. As the broader culture began to break down, wars became a constant feature for life. Most villages and individuals were economically unstable. More and more people had become enslaved and the middle class was disappearing all around us so that the doors to the simple good life were locked unless you were born into the right family. So everyone else, everyone in that synagogue was poor in the broadest sense of the word unable to walk through life unhindered because that's how it was. This is the world in which Jesus announces good news to the poor, not just a promise about our inner lives or the next world, but hope for a change in this world. What he reads next fills out the promise. Listen carefully now. He has sent me to proclaim Release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Four promises, each one with a figurative component, a spiritual element, but also each one a literal promise for here and now for changes in this world. Let's take our time with them, one at a time, release to the captives. There is a spiritual side here, the promise of internal freedom that comes with faith. Sin holds us captive. The Bible teaches that clearly. Jesus proclaims liberty from the binding power of guilt, and in fact, he's given that spiritual release but that's not all he's promising here. In the synagogue at Nazareth, this is the promise of release from the captivity imposed by the Roman authorities who had been making life miserable for all the people that are gathered together that day. A real change in political realities in the region, a promise related to the social existence of everyone in that synagogue, released from the systems holding people captive. Jesus promises that first. Let's look at the second one. And recovery of sight to the blind. Vision is used figuratively in the Bible. Blindness can refer to the condition of being cut off from the truth, unable to see the right path to walk on in the dark spiritually. And Jesus promises illumination, recovery of spiritual vision. He means that here, but not only that. Blindness is also a physical condition in the first century, which ruins a person economically and socially. Jesus actually healed blind eyes, restoring people to dignity and self-sufficiency. He promises real healing here. The third, 
to let the oppressed go free. Nothing oppresses like the tyranny of the spiritual forces of this present darkness. Jesus promises freedom to all who are spiritually oppressed. But again, his promise here means more than that. Life under Roman rule with taxation and limits on religious expression and civic freedom was oppressive. And Jesus is promising to free people from structures which oppress them, to bring justice for the weak and marginalized, to liberate all who are abused and pushed down and forgotten. Like the previous two, all three of these promises is spiritual, but also a guarantee about something Jesus is going to initiate here and now. The fourth, that would have been the clearest to those in the synagogue, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He means the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year, God's people were told to proclaim liberty to everyone. You can read the details in Leviticus 25. Every financial debt was to be canceled. All family property that had been mortgaged returned. Every slave released to complete freedom and rest given to the fields and those who worked in them day after day. Every inequity that had accumulated through the years was to be crossed off so that all of God's people could begin again at the same point. The promise of genuine relief right now. Now think about how good it would be to hear these four promises in the synagogue at Nazareth. Good news for the poor. Release for every captive. Recovery of sight to the blind. The year of the Lord's favor for all of us. All promises that God will change what has become ugly in this world into something beautiful. Don't we all want this promise today? Don't we all want the ugliness to be replaced with beauty? Think of the world you inhabit this morning. Not just your private sphere, but the world in which we are all citizens. Can you see the ugliness that needs to change? It's in the headlines every day. Tensions and strife between those who are crying out for justice for black lives and those who insist that the real problem is a departure from law and order. All of it amplified by the feeling on both sides that the other is being manipulated by false information and it's ugly. It's not the only thing that needs to change. I've talked to three friends recently who are professional counselors. Since the pandemic started, anxiety and depression are way up. This mixture of isolation and social strife has taken a real toll on our collective mental health, and it's ugly. But again, there's more. Poverty 
Economic disparity, primarily in communities of color, but not exclusively, continues to be a debilitating problem in our country. All the while, the divide between the richest and the rest keeps growing. The poor need good news, but how will it come? There's the ugliness of inequalities of opportunity that come with where you live. Communities that are under-resourced and practically inescapable, virtually guaranteeing an inheritance of disadvantage, especially for the young. And it's oppressive. And then there's the cycle of literal captivity, a swelling of the prison population during the past 40 years that is unprecedented in human history, disproportionate in our country compared to everywhere else in the world. And clearly it's not delivering on the hope of rehabilitation. Something big needs to change. And now even as I describe what I see, I know there are listeners who see things very differently. Good people who are trying to follow Jesus like I am. I've had conversations with folks on both sides of the lines that we draw between every single issue that a person could care about. And here on this side, it feels like a different reality than that other side. And the back and forth brings out the very worst in us, uniting groups in their common contempt for their perceived enemies. So we're energized by what we oppose and motivated to change by all the wrong impulses. Anger and self-righteousness. We wish it weren't true, but hatred and disdain and fear. And it's really, really ugly. I have a few friends who think it's hopeless right now. The only reason I don't is because I trust the one who came to Nazareth. And I believe what he promised that day in the synagogue and what he did with the life that he lived. What happens after Jesus reads the words from Isaiah is subtle, but it's telling. Look with me. And what he does when he finishes reading, this is verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. It's very easy to miss what just happened. After reading, it is customary for the rabbi to hand the scroll back. And then to sit down and to teach from his seat. But here every eye is on Jesus, not just because of what he had read, but because of what he chooses not to read. He hasn't finished the passage from Isaiah. In fact, he stopped right in the middle of a verse. Probably very few of us will have noticed this, but in the synagogue in Nazareth, everybody catches it. Listen very carefully to what was there in the scroll from Isaiah where Jesus chose to read. He had picked chapter 61 and he read, but then when he got to verse 2, he stopped in the middle. Listen, this is Isaiah 61 verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus had read that 
But Isaiah goes on to say, and the day of the vengeance of our God. Jesus stopped before reading that part. He chose to leave off the bit about the vengeance of God. Why would he do that? I've thought a lot about this question, and I've read quite a bit too. To me, it seems Jesus is saying something absolutely critical about the breadth of God's mission, something that has to be said that day because he knew that in Nazareth, once his hearers were thinking about the ugly things in the world that needed to change, they would also immediately be thinking about their enemies whom they would blame for all the troubles they faced. And they are the ones that quite naturally each person would want to see destroyed, wiped out by the vengeance of God. But in this moment, Jesus knows something about the mission of God that nobody else knows. Instead of God's vengeance coming against those who are guilty, our enemies, however we define them, Jesus knows that he will become guilty in the place of every person. Them and us too. On the cross, he will become the prisoner so that everyone can be free, emptying himself so that he can fill all the other people, taking God's vengeance into his own person so that it does not need to be poured out on anyone else. Jesus knows that God will overcome all of this ugliness with something beautiful. So Jesus stops in the middle of the verse and he leaves off the line about God's vengeance. And then he sits down. Knowing that everyone is looking at him, wondering what he's going to say. This is verse 21. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the Messiah who has come to bring good news, Jesus is saying. But I will not give you the vengeance that you want. God's mission will be different than you had expected. In case the message wasn't clear, Jesus goes on to cite two Old Testament stories about Elijah and Elisha, in both cases, prophets who confer special blessings on the Gentiles the enemies of Israel, helping them instead of destroying them. It's not only you, Jesus is saying, but all of God's creation to whom I announce this good news. I've come to fix the whole world entirely, to deliver even the ones you are against. That is beautiful. In response, the crowd at the synagogue turns violent. They stand up together, force Jesus out of the building, lead him to the edge of the village and try to throw him off a cliff. Maybe you know this already, but true beauty 
is not always tolerated in our world. But in the end, beauty will always win out over ugliness. That's how God has made the world. Listen again to these words from Isaiah. Chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen to me. I'm going to tell you the truth. God reigns. He always has and he always will. Jesus has made peace between God and all of creation. He has brought salvation. He has accomplished the reconciliation of the world to God. Good news. He did this when he took the place of every sinner on the cross, no matter which side of which line you were on. He did this by choosing not to count our trespasses against us, but instead forgiving us and then entrusting us with the message of reconciliation, making us beautiful as the agents of his ongoing transformation of the world, which is ugly still and waiting to be changed by beauty, waiting for our lives to show the gospel here and now. Beautiful when we stand up and fight for justice, when we defend those who are weak and vulnerable and who cannot defend themselves, when we work at building community to combat loneliness, when we overcome evil with good, when we tell people about Jesus who don't know him yet, when we use every little gift we have to lift and encourage others, when we let Jesus save us and then make us beautiful right where he's put us. For the next two months, we are going to be taking a close look at men and women who are beautiful, whose lives show the gospel and change the world right where God has placed them, which is just what God has saved each and every one of us for. I want you to hear this clearly and take it to heart as we close this morning with a passage from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the results of works, so that no one may boast. It was through the beauty of his self Sacrifice for no other reason than love that God has saved us, a pure gift with very specific consequences for us right now. Listen, for we are what he has made us. In Greek, literally, his handcrafted masterpiece, beautiful. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. That means God has saved us not because we are beautiful, but so we can be beautiful in the world that he loves. And in that way, change what needs to be changed. When we work at the good he had in mind for us when he made us. With his help, we can 
and we will see beauty changing the world that we live in. Let's pray now and ask for his help. God, we thank you for the promise which Jesus made and which he delivered on. The promise to bring good news, to release captives, to deliver those who are oppressed, to bring recovery of sight to those who are blind, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God, even though it's hard to see, would you help us even now have eyes that are opened to the beauty which is all around us as men and women of faith stand and shine brightly in the darkness. And then in these weeks ahead, would you give us eyes to see how we ourselves can be beautiful in the ways that you've made us to be beautiful as we find the good things for which you have saved us as we become beautiful in a world that needs it. Fill us with hope, inspire us, give us pictures that we can aspire to. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for the sake of the world which you love. Amen. Amen.